feels like for a couple weeks now, some teams are just kind of under the radar. And strangely enough, Florida State feels like they're one of those teams that is quietly getting better. Hello and welcome in. It's a Monday edition of Always College Football. Today is October 16th, and we hope that you enjoy the show wherever it is you're getting the show, whether that's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you're on the ESPN YouTube channel, thanks so much for being with us. If you're on one of the podcast platforms, please subscribe to the show and then leave us a rating if you can. It'd mean a lot. Leave us a review if you'd like. That's perfectly fine as well. If you're on the YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up right below the video. We appreciate you being here with us. I'm Greg McElroy. Along with me is Mark Kubiak, Jack Foster, and Jake Garcia. It's been an awesome first seven weeks of the college football season. We had an incredible weekend with some memorable matchups, some memorable performances, and we broke those down just a little bit, obviously, on yesterday's show. But today is the day that we dive in just a little bit deeper. I'll give you my 10 takeaways from this past weekend. Plus, we'll go over the AP poll I make a couple adjustments in my own poll this week as well, even though I do think the AP poll deserves a little credit. It's not terrible, which is progress, (laughs) big progress from the AP poll. So we won't waste any additional time. Let's get to that poll right now on Always College Football. AP poll reaction. My top 10 is a little different from the AP top 10, but I got to be honest, the AP is starting to round into form a little bit. I'm actually, I'm not going to say proud, but I'm starting to soften on my take that the AP is just a ridiculous poll. It's not the worst. It's not the best. There are a few changes, however, that I would make. I would still keep Georgia at number one. Granted, a bit of a roller coaster at times this year, and it's been reflected based on their first place votes. The Bulldogs, they're down to 43 first place votes this week. Michigan is up to 16 first place votes. So this has been kind of an up and down for Georgia as far as whether they should be number one or if Michigan should be. I'd keep Georgia there for the time being because while Georgia hasn't played a lot of quality teams so far, their best win actually got worse this past week with what happened with Kentucky. Michigan has really not played anybody. So just on sheer quality alone, I would have Georgia ahead of Michigan, but it's by a pretty tiny fraction be really, really small. I'd have Ohio State at three, have no issue whatsoever. Their best win got better this weekend with what Notre Dame did this past weekend. Number four, I'd have Oklahoma. The AP actually has them at number six. But what's funny to me is that the AP acknowledges Texas as the top one loss team. So therefore, Oklahoma has the best win in America. That's according to the AP because Texas is ranked number eight whereas Oregon is number nine, meaning that Oklahoma's best win against Texas should be reflected with having them at number four. Washington, I would have at five. That's where I think is appropriate. Oregon, second best win in the season this past weekend. The Huskies obviously got it done. We'll talk about it here in a minute. So I would have Washington at number five. And then at number six, I'd have Florida State. The AP has them at number four, but their wins right now, Clemson and LSU. Now, while LSU is looking a little bit better the last couple of weeks, still, I would say that the LSU win is not as good as the Oregon win and is not as good as the Texas win for both Washington and Oklahoma, respectively. Therefore, Florida State would be in at number six. At number seven would be Penn State, obviously playing at Ohio State this week. They're going to have plenty of opportunities to really 
make a significant impression if they can go to Columbus and get the job done. Oregon, top one loss team in my world. And when I look at both Oregon and Texas, I look at their schedule strength. And granted, Texas has a better win than Oregon with Texas's win against Alabama. I think about which team would I take in a game against each other. What's Texas's biggest weakness? That would be their secondary. What does Oregon look like right now offensively? I think they match up pretty similar to Oklahoma in a lot of ways. But I think Oregon's actually a little bit more balanced and can run the ball with a little bit more efficiency. I think Oregon would beat Texas if they played right now on a neutral site. So it'd be close either way. That's why I have Oregon at eight, Texas at nine. And then in at number 10, the North Carolina Tar Heels. That's their highest ranking since the preseason poll in 2020. They were also number 10 that day as well. So North Carolina, whether it's a blessing to be in the top 10 or a curse, Kubiak will explain why in a minute. That's where I'd have them here in just a minute. A couple other nuggets from the AP poll. But before we get to the nuggets, Koobs, tell us what the problem is with number 10. All right, it's a curse. And I just looked it up a little bit more. So your last two number 10 teams, Washington State and Louisville, have both lost. <laughs> UCLA and Pittsburgh. But you take a little step further in the AP poll, the last three number 10 teams have lost. USC, Notre Dame, Utah. So beware, North Carolina. <laughs> Virginia's coming. Be careful, Tar Heels. I think they'll handle Virginia. If they don't, uh, then I might just be done doing my own poll every week. Might as well, because North Carolina's legit. We'll talk about it here in just a minute. That's a really good football team. Other nuggets of note outside the top 10, Duke's up to number 16. That's their highest ranking since October 24th of 1994. Okay, so we're talking 30 years of subpar football. They're in Durham, North Carolina. They're now in the top 16, and they're looking for their first appearance in the top 15. Of course, they play Florida State this week. If they win that, it'll be their first appearance in the top 15 since 1971. So historical implications for the Blue Devils right now. Notre Dame jumps back into the top 15. The top-ranked two-loss team in the poll, LSU's at number 19, and then UCLA's at number, number 25. Those are the other two notable two-loss teams. But Notre Dame, clearly, uh, the AP feels as though they're the top two-loss team for sure. Missouri's back into the poll at number 20, their highest ranking since 2014. They finished that season at number 14. So at number 20, thin air right now for the Missouri Tigers. Air Force, welcome to the top 25 Air Force. They're at number 22. It's the first time the Falcons have been ranked since finishing the 2019 season at number 22. And then Iowa is back in the rankings at number 24. They have been in and out all season long, but I think deserving of a top 25 spot right now. Top 10 takeaways from the weekend. What do we learn? What do we figure out? And how do we kind of stack up some of these things as we move forward? Several are matchup dependent. Several are uh, as it relates to actual games, both the winner and the loser, what have you. But it's a fun exercise that we do every week to kind of dive a little deeper in some of these matchups. Let's start with number one. Washington is who we thought they were. Now, we've been bullish on Washington. We, we've had really high hopes for them. Uh, I think probably when looking at all the different teams in college football, we've probably been probably a little higher on Washington than most of the other national analysts, partly because I think that there are some things you just can't wrap your head around when evaluating this team. I've compared them to 2019 LSU. 
There's just something about this group that's just different. They're different. They have remarkable explosiveness. And let's actually look back at last week. We don't often pat ourselves on the back, okay? Because believe me, for every time we get it right, we get one way wrong, okay? So we understand very much that there are some things that that we get right and we nail. This in particular was one that we nailed. So let's re- revisit how we broke down this game at the end of the breakdowns last week. All the trends are pointing towards Oregon in this one. All the stats, all the metrics, everything is on the side of the Ducks. So basically, I'll sum it up like this. Almost every conceivable stat that you would go in picking this game supports Oregon winning the game. But here's the problem. This Washington team feels a little bit like 2019 LSU right now, where they're going to be great games, great teams that look statistically superior and maybe more well-rounded, but it didn't matter. Because Michael Penix is that good and this receiving core is that good. I'm taking Washington to win the game. I think they get it done at home. Okay, every metric supports Oregon winning the game. But we're taking Washington. That's how we summed it up, right? Well, let's go through the metrics for a moment. Oregon had a first down advantage, 31 to 24. Oregon was better on third down. They converted 10 of 16 to Washington's 5 of 11. Oregon had 540 yards of offense to Washington's 415. Washington also was outgained by over 100 yards. Oregon rushed for 204 to Washington's 99. Oregon was plus one on the turnover margin. Oregon had a 34-26 edge in time of possession. None of it mattered because Washington ultimately won the game. Now, I think this was a really interesting matchup, and we might see it again. We'll contemplate that at a later date, but we know how good Michael Penix is. Okay. We know how amazing he is. The guy's unbelievable. And we know his supporting cast is off the charts as well. Roma Dunze and Jalen Polk are absolutely ridiculous. And now you look at what Giles Jackson is contributing as a possible number three, ultimately in time when McMillan will hopefully get back to 100%. And you have a running back in Dylan Johnson that just went for 100 yards. Granted, it felt like a grind to get to 100 yards. He had the 17-yarder, but there weren't a lot of big explosive runs in the game. This is a really well-rounded offense. Really well-rounded. But it's ultimately going to go as Michael Penix goes. He finished the day 22 of 37, 302, four touchdowns in the pick. It definitely wasn't his best day. And he got a little bit banged up throughout the course of the game. And he made the plays that Washington needed him to make when they had to have him. I also think there in the second half, man, there was a moment there in the second half. You know, end of the third, beginning of the fourth. Obviously, they had a lead for a moment, so it felt pretty comfortable. I didn't like their play calling. Like, I love Ryan Grubb. I think Ryan Grubb's one of the best offensive coordinators in America. But I thought there was a moment there really in the final, gosh, three or four possessions when I just didn't like what they were trying to do. It was like first and 10, they'd run it, and then it'd be second and eight. Michael Penix would throw it deep. They'd be third and eight because he'd missed the throw, and then they're off the field because they can't quite get to the sticks. And you got to give a ton of credit to Oregon. I thought Oregon did a pretty good job of making him uncomfortable. He had to move in the pocket more than he'd had up to this point. They, I thought, had some really close calls in the back end, whereas well defended, but he just made it right. 
But when he had the ball at the very end, it was almost as if it was undeniable he was going to go down, they were going to win the game. And that's exactly what happened. You give a guy like Michael Penix additional opportunities, he's going to make you pay. Now, there are a lot of things that I'd like to see cleaned up for Washington in the game. I didn't think they did a great job against the run. That's been a huge question mark coming into the season. I think they can clean that up an awful lot. I didn't think that they were elite on the back end. I thought their eyes, they suffered a bunch of eye violations where guys were kind of looking in one direction and then going out to another. And you got to give Oregon's offensive staff a lot of credit for that. And then finally, the offensive line, Michael Penix was hit and harassed a lot in this game. Way more so than we'd seen at any point up to the season. Now, they're able to hold up enough to at least threaten the Ducks with a run game. They're able to hold up enough to allow Penix to obviously lead the comeback. But man, it was a really up and down performance on the offensive line. And if we're going to take it one step further, as far as assessing where they made some mistakes, you have the goal line stand, right? How do you take the ball out of Michael Penix's hands four plays in a row, right? I mean, that to me, I think is a big mistake. And I'm not saying, hey, it's a one yard line. Like you would hope that you would be able to do enough at the goal line to be able to surge across the line of scrimmage to score the touchdown, but they couldn't. And partly, I think, because why don't they run one of those in-breaking screens? Like, throw it to Roma Dunze, make the secondary players for Oregon tackle in space, and see if he can't surge forward to the end zone. Like, I was shocked that they didn't at least try that. So I think when you look at how Washington played in the game, they got the win. They should feel very, very proud of the resilience that they showed throughout the game, but it was far from a stellar effort. And I actually think that they're capable of an awful lot more, which should be a scary proposition for some of the teams that will be coming up on their schedule. Takeaway number two, Oregon isn't going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. The AP poll, actually, they just dropped them one spot. I think you could have made a case where you might be able to even move them up with how they played in the game. There are no moral victories in college football. I understand that, okay? There are no moral victories, but a lot of people will look at that game and say that Oregon was the superior team because of some of the missed opportunities, which we'll get to in a moment. But there were a lot of people that said, well, man, this game could have broken a thousand different ways and 700 of those games would have resulted in Oregon victory. The 30% where Washington wins, that's ultimately what came to the forefront. But man, we're talking about a team that just gained 541 total yards, a team that can control to possess the ball, a team that rushed for over 200 yards, a team whose quarterback, I thought Bo Nix played awesome in the game, a team that actually had plenty of opportunities to put this game on ice. Now, we got to talk about the fourth downs. And, and a lot of people are really critical of Dan Lanning and the decision-making that he had throughout the game. Let's talk first about what Oregon is statistically on fourth down, okay? Over the last year, well, let's just look at 22 for for an example. They converted 62% of their fourth down conversions last year. That's 21st in college football last season. Entering Saturday, the Ducks had converted eight of 10 fourth down attempts. There's a team that likes to roll the dice, and it's a team that traditionally has been great in those situations. 
So Dan Lanning, understanding the stats and the analytics, and I know, look, some people love the analytics, some people hate the analytics. I think there's a place for it, but gut instinct also has to be a factor when it comes to making these decisions. I would put Bo Nix in that situation on fourth and three again, if I were Dan Lanning. I would trust my quarterback again. Now, I ultimately know that they lost the game because they went for it on fourth and three. Maybe they should have taken the couple field goals there. They relied on the field. People were mad at him for leaning on a field goal at the very end, and the guy missed it. So are you mad at him for for not taking the field goals early when I know that they were chip shots? And then you're not then you're mad at him for for trotting the field goal kicker out there late. I, I guess it's just I think it's easy to poke fun at their shortcomings. But the reality is this for Oregon. In the last two losses against both Oregon State and this past Saturday against Washington, they're combined 0 for 8 on fourth down. So they can move the ball. They can get within striking distance. But if you stop them and get off the field in fourth down situations, they're going to lose. So I think that when you look at the 0 for 3 performance in fourth downs this past weekend, that was ultimately what was their demise. I still, though, would have done the exact same thing that Dan Lanning did. I would have. I, I know that it's it's easy to look back and say, well, it was the wrong call. It was the wrong decision. I trust my quarterback. I trust my offense. And to be honest with you, on third and two there at the very end, that was the more troubling down. Really, second down, they had it tackled, bottled up for a loss on the play. They somehow find a way to get to third and two to make it a little bit more manageable, and it wasn't to be. But if you look at where they're at and just what they have from a quality at wide receiver, a quality at quarterback, I think Bucky Irving is amazing, man. Probably one of the best players in college football that doesn't get the credit that he deserves. Uh, the pass rush had an impact on the game. I right, The secondary did a pretty good job. <laughs> I mean, when you look at just how wide open Oregon's receivers have been in every game, or excuse me, Washington's receiver had been in every game prior to Saturday, you would understand that that was actually a pretty decent performance defensively from the Oregon Ducks. It just wasn't enough. But if they played that game again and they can get just one of those fourth downs to go their way. Remember, this is a team 62% last year and they were 80% coming into the game. They had zero for three. You get just one of those and you roll the dice like they have every single time since Dan Lanning's been the coach. More often than not, you're probably going to make those plays. So I still agree with the decision to go for it, even though it came up short. Because if there's one thing I learned in this past Saturday's performance is that Oregon is going to be a factor down the road again. Just one play. One play to gain three yards. I'd roll the dice again if I were the Ducks. All right. Right now, halfway through October, is the Pac-12 in the best position to get two teams into the CFP? And is it just Oregon and Washington? No. Oregon State's very real. I think Oregon State's for real. We haven't even seen Utah with their starting quarterback yet. I mean, they're still in the mix. I still think that this league is, at the end of the day, going to cannibalize itself. And there's going to be teams with two losses that would have zero losses or maybe one in one of the other leagues. So ultimately, I still think it's going to cannibalize itself. So the idea that there's going to be two teams from the Pac-12 that get in, to me, is a bit too much. If there's a league that's going to get two, it's probably going to be the Big Ten. 
because we've already seen both Ohio State and Michigan in the playoff in the past. We saw them both in the playoff last year. And in the event in which Ohio State beats Penn State, Penn State maybe beats Michigan at their place, uh, and Michigan beats Ohio State at their place, then you might have three 11-1 teams. And I think one of those teams, given the strength of schedule in the non-conference for Ohio State, I think one of those teams is likely to get in even as an at-large situation. But if I had to bet right now, I would not bet on any league getting two teams in the college football playoff. Takeaway number three. It might be too late, but man, Notre Dame has guts. You know, they might be just a little bit too late, but this team has a grit and a resilience and a bounce back that you have to be proud of if you're a Notre Dame fan. Because I was thinking last week after the Louisville game, I'm sitting there thinking, man, is this group a house of cards? I mean, is it one play away from just seeing the whole thing possibly just completely shut down? Well, we found out pretty quickly that that Marcus Freeman wasn't going to allow that to happen. They just handed Lincoln Riley the second worst loss of his head, head coaching career. And it was really compelling, really compelling when you look at just the pieces that they were able to kind of use in order to ultimately win the game. Now, I think this narrative surrounding Marcus Freeman feels very different today than where it was a week ago. Last Saturday night was a reminder why everyone still needs to believe in Marcus Freeman. Obviously, they look, their Louisville game was one that was forgettable. It's one that you don't want to have. It was a bad performance, no doubt about it. And all week long, they tried to figure out, all right, what went wrong against Louisville? They tried to address it. They tried to fix it. They talked about simplifying what they were doing, both offensively and defensively, cutting down on what they were asking the players to do at or around the line of scrimmage, and look at the result. The offensive line, which got gashed the week before, didn't allow a sack against a USC team that was pretty dang good as it comes to rushing the passer. The special teams, which uh, you know we, we never talk about, was a huge impact on the game when Jadarian Price took it 99 yards to the house. And then the offense, well, the offense wasn't exactly the... It, it wasn't a, a ridiculous offensive performance. They didn't totally lean on Sam Hartman. He was merely a piece of the puzzle as opposed to the puzzle itself. Defensively, it was an amazing game plan. Absolutely an amazing game plan. And Al Golden and Marcus Freeman, I think, deserve a tremendous amount of credit for how this group played. They led to Caleb Williams having the worst game of his college career. And if you, at least since he's been in the USC uniform, six sacks, they had just had 11 coming into the game. You forced three interceptions. And it was as if Caleb Williams just never looked comfortable in the game. Never at all. Now, let's go back to the drawing board for a minute offensively. You look at Notre Dame and you see 251 yards of offense. You look at the fact that SC had 10 more first downs. And yet, the offense did everything that they need to do. They didn't have a ton of explosive plays by any stretch. But man, the 46-yard touchdown to Chris Tyree in the third quarter, which was pretty significant because at that point, it's like, oh boy, SC is going to make this thing a little bit interesting. They had to have it. 
And you look at the final numbers for Sam Hartman, it was hardly a day that you would look at and say, man, this is one that you really want to keep the game ball for. I mean, just 13 to 20 for 126. All right. But, and you take away the Tyree explosive play, you got just 80 yards passing, but it didn't matter. I mean, it looked like the offense had not grown from the Ohio State Duke and Louisville game. But when you think about where, where Notre Dame is, they're still very talented. I still think they're very physical. The issues that plagued them at the line of scrimmage against Louisville did not show up in this game. And that was significant. And we continue to think too, everyone loves Ohio State right now, right? Like everyone loves Ohio State and rightfully so. Ohio State's really good. But the difference between team number three in college football, which is Ohio State, and team number 15 in college football was one yard and one player. Because if Notre Dame has 11 guys on defense that day and they don't let Chip Trainum run right where the defensive end was missing and score by about this much, they win the game. Instead, they got two losses and feels like right now they're still in a position to make the New Year's Six, but the college football playoff feels like a long way off in the distance. Just goes to show you how close the margins are for Notre Dame. They are very talented. They're very good. And they won all three phases on Saturday night. And they deserve a tremendous amount of credit for that. But man, you just have to wonder what if for the Irish, if they had just played that final snap against Ohio State a little differently. Takeaway number four. Talked about Notre Dame. We always lead with the winners. But USC needs a whole program evaluation from top to bottom this offseason. It's it's no denying that this team has talent. This team has speed. This team has players that will make a lot of money playing the game. But when you remove the, for lack of a better word, magician, that is Caleb Williams, when you have to face a, a legit power five team, you look at this group is a little bit leaky, man. And it's, it's hard kind of to, to wrap your head around because it's, they have a lot of things that, you, that most teams would just love to have. And then you look at it and it's like pre-snap penalties, uh, poor protection, uh, kickoff coverage bus, um, turnovers, uh, all the above this past weekend. Now their talent is, is good, but they can't overcome their own self-inflicted mistakes. And USC has flirted with disaster all season long. They, they have. I mean, it's been mo multiple examples in which they were really close to coming up short. But there's still areas where this team needs to get a whole lot better. Tackling continues to plague this group. Poor positioning in some situations. Not leveraging the football defensively. These are all things that are problematic. So I think when they look back at this season for USC, Lincoln Riley needs to adjust a few things. They need to make sure that their offense is not so quarterback dependent. Because look, when Caleb Williams, who is incredible, man, he's incredible. He had the worst game of his college career and it wasn't competitive. So when your quarterback plays that bad, you would like to still potentially be in the game because the other aspects of your team can elevate around the quarterback who doesn't have his best stuff. And look, Caleb Williams has to operate outside the play structure all the time. 
whether it's avoiding a rush, making a play, an off-platform throw, being able to extend, scramble drill, all that stuff is something that he does all the time. Well, when you don't have the best player in college football at quarterback, are you going to be able to win against quality competition? I don't know. I don't think so. And if nothing else, they got to, I think, work a little bit more on how they structure practice in good-on-good situations. They think they need to do a lot more as far as fundamentals and tackling. They do a lot more in fundamentals and run fits. And they need to do a lot better in the secondary, making sure guys are brought down. The guys at the second level, the linebackers, the safeties, these guys are in position to make plays and they don't. Why is that? And how do you get it fixed? Because this is not just an SC thing. This goes back to when Lincoln Riley was the head coach at Oklahoma too. Guys would occasionally be in position and they wouldn't make the play. So it's a fundamental issue, more so than it is a talent issue. And they have to get addressed because the talent is good enough. I really believe that. And another thing too, special teams, you, you can't give off big... It felt like for three quarters, man, the Irish were ready. Like it was, it was close, wasn't it? I mean, there were multiple times in the special teams area where it felt like they were getting ready to, to break one open. And then sure enough, they did. So they got to get that addressed as well. Now, the program as a whole got a reminder on Saturday that they're good, but they're nowhere good enough along the line of scrimmage to hang in the top half right now of the college football world. Top half meaning like the contenders. But here's an even bigger concern. They're moving to the Big Ten next year. And if there's one thing I know about the Big Ten is that that league, more often than not, the champions of that league are going to be determined on the line of scrimmage. And if SC doesn't take significant strides in that part of their program here in the next calendar year, it could be a rude awakening when they move into a league that emphasizes that part of the game every single week. Takeaway number five, Tennessee is winning, but it couldn't be more different this year, (laughs) right? I mean, if you're watching... Tennessee and Texas A&M this past weekend, and you were to switch out uniforms and you were to put Tennessee in black and gold and put a Hawkeye on their helmet, would you think that you might've been watching Iowa? I mean, now I know that Tennessee is not accustomed to getting into big 10 style defensive, you know, fist fights. They, They don't usually win when they don't score. They, I think, do a lot of things at a really high level, except they don't really have a whole lot of explosiveness offensively, which is totally mind-blowing when I think about what Tennessee was last year, right? Josh Heupel, Tempo, Hendon Hooker, Heisman Candidate, great receivers, great speed, big plays down the field, just an absolute track meet almost every single time you turn on the tape. In 31 Josh Heupel games at Tennessee, entering Saturday's game against Texas A&M, 24 of those games were lopsided results, most of which obviously having massive, massive margins of victory. They had four wins by an average score up to this point of 41-15. They obviously didn't play well against Florida. But if you look at just how much they routed teams last year, I mean, their average margin last year was 53-12. It, it, was, it was unbelievable. Now, when they got into a game that was going to be a track meet like that, they were fine. 
allowing your offense to do those things because guess what? They were going to outscore you. Best evidence probably by the game against Alabama last year when Jalen Hyatt had felt like seven touchdowns and Tennessee wins the game 52-49. Now, here's what I think really interesting about it is if you look at where Josh Heupel is as a head coach, he's 50-8 and as a head coach at both Tennessee and at Central Florida. When his teams have scored 30 or more points, all right, when his teams have scored 30 or more points, so he's 50 and 8 when they scored 30 or more points, he was 0 and 9 when failing to break 30. Well, now he's 1 and 9. <laughs> he's 1 and 9 because his defense clearly found a way to get it done. Now we'll talk about the run game here in a minute, but it's the defense and the special teams that Tennessee is currently winning with. They have guys along the defensive front that are off the charts. I mean, off the charts good. Whether it's James Pierce, who you know had a, had a sack, uh, they had five of their 11 quarterback hurries. It felt like the entire time they were constantly forcing Max Johnson to retreat in the pocket. He's having to throw off his back, sh- back foot. As a result, his ball's either airmailed or it doesn't have enough velocity on it. And then sure enough, a couple of those defenders are able to pick it off. Gabe Judy Lolly and Kamal Haddon, two great interceptions, killing drives. I think you look at the words that Josh Heupel actually used to describe his team's performance. He used the words relentless and dominated. I'm not sure I could think of two more appropriate words when looking at how his team played in the front defensively. Now, I think if you look at the offense, there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of issues right now, but they just went against the best rushing defense in the SEC. And they ran all over. Now, obviously, the passing offense is something that's a huge issue. Now, the scheme is going to, I think, create a lot of issues and conflicts for opposing defenses. And you're going against a top-tier defense like AM, and you're able to you know, run for 230. I mean, 136 for Jalen Wright, doing that on 19 carries. Pro- probably could make a pretty strong argument that he needed more touches. But Jabari Small and Dylan Sampson obviously factor in the game as well. And then what they did in special teams, I mean, Jackson Ross, I mean, he gets a ton of credit. He punts the ball down inside the Aggies' five-yard line midway through the third quarter. They're going against the wind, so if they can just get off the field after D. Williams drops it there, if they can just get off the field, they're going to be in great shape. Well, boom, they punt the ball. It's at like the 30-yard line. They're able to corral it, make a guy miss, and out the gate. So I think the special teams were probably the biggest key in the game especially in the third quarter when they were playing a lot of ball control and they were playing a lot of field position, man. The passing game has to get sorted out. Right now, it's it's just not where it needs to be. Compared to where it was a year ago, it's nowhere near where it needs to be. They entered last week's game 68th in the FBS and 12th in the SEC throwing the football. Ahead of only Kentucky and Auburn, their efficiency rating is subpar. And I would imagine that it's probably not... I haven't looked at the numbers today, but I would imagine it's probably not going to be improved by 11 to 22 for 100 yards 
and obviously the touchdown pass to Jacob Warren, but the interception in the end zone was a bad decision. So the passing game has to get going for Tennessee at some point, but man, you have to be impressed with the way they won this game this past weekend with special teams and defense, because that was not a game that they would have won a year ago, but they found a way to get it done because of how improved that side of the ball is in the third phase being a huge factor as well. Tennessee is four and five on the road under Josh Heupel and SEC games. They have three pretty big away games coming up at Alabama, at Kentucky, and at Missouri. How confident are you for Tennessee fans that they can get a winning record out of those three games? Ooh, winning record? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if I feel super confident about winning record. We'll, of course, break down the third Saturday in October a little later in the week. But I, I think it's really encouraging. I know that Tennessee fans might not feel this way. I think it's really encouraging to have more than one pathway to victory. You know, I, I feel like often, and we're going to get enamored, and we've talked about this in the past. Like, if your passing attack is unbelievable, then you're going to get boosted up because of how scary you are to play. That's why everyone's like, oh man, look at LSU. Look at LSU. LSU is an offensive juggernaut. Well, t- Tennessee is not that way, but I do feel like last year the game had to go a certain way for them to win. This year, they can find different pathways to victory. So for instance, if the starting point, let's just, uh, let's say Knoxville, let's just say Knoxville, you're driving from Knoxville to Atlanta. Okay. There's a bunch of different pathways. Let's say Knoxville is the start of the game. Atlanta is the victory. Just using the SEC championship game as the ultimate destination. There's a bunch of different pathways. You can go over through Chattanooga. You can go, you can go down through, through Alabama. Uh, you can get on I-20 and go east. Like last year, Tennessee had to go one direction to victory. They had one pathway to victory against top-tier competition. Now I think they can go a bunch of different ways. So the roadmap for Tennessee moving forward, I think, is going to be interesting. If they can get that passing attack going, this team could this team could be really dangerous. Really, really dangerous down the stretch. Number six, Texas A&M's roster does not currently match the results. Just doesn't. Now you look at where the Aggies are as far as composite rankings and, and uh, you know, uh, 247 does the composite and a bunch of other places do the, basically the team talent rankings. Well, in a lot of these rankings, they are a top four team as far as their personnel. But you look at just their philosophy. I mean, they are, I mean, they, they don't get a lot out of that personnel. I mean, you look at Oregon and Washington, like how often they're going forward on fourth down, how aggressive they are. They're calling timeouts, trying to steal possessions, trying to steal points at the end of the half. There's been multiple times this year where the Aggies aren't really in a position to do that, don't want to do that. Like, hey, we'll just take the lead. We'll take timeouts to halftime. Like they got to start, I think, being more aggressive. Just philosophically, the game has changed a little bit. And now, whether it's analytics-driven or being aggressive, you have to be willing to adjust. And right now, Jimbo Fisher is not really wanting to adjust. Since he's arrived at Texas A&M, the Aggies are 0-8 on the road against top 25 teams. That's actually their eighth consecutive road loss against all opponents. And the last time the Aggies won a game on the road was October 16th of 2021 against a very, very average Missouri football team. Now you look at the offense, they couldn't protect Max Johnson. That's been an issue the last couple of weeks. They also had a couple interceptions. They had 11 penalties and they averaged four and a half yards of play. 
you look at what their defense, I mean, their defense is playing well enough for them to win. I mean, you hold Tennessee to 332 yards of offense and just 20 points, and seven of which were on a kick return. You had short field a couple times. Defense able to force the field goal there at the end to at least give them a chance. Their defense is enough to win. But the offense, man, is continuing to hold them back, and partly because the offensive line is an issue. It's continuing to be an issue and has been for a really long time. Like you have bad snaps. You had, uh, you, you look at Max Johnson, you thought, well, maybe after Connor Wigman got hurt in September, maybe Max Johnson isn't that much of a drop off. Wigman was playing great football and it's tough to put a backup quarterback in there. You lose your starting quarterback for the year. It, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. I don't care who you are. It's going to be difficult, but. The reason why they lost Wigman is because he took a million hits, whether it's against Miami, uh, against Auburn. They took a bunch of hits because the offensive line isn't playing good. You got to protect your quarterback or you're going to lose him for the year, which they did. They've also lost multiple quarterbacks last year, which led to Wigman ultimately starting the games at the end. But it's because they took too many hits, got hit way too many times. Now you have 11 penalties. That's a problem. And this was an offense that was supposed to take off with Bobby Petrino coming in, and they had 306 yards against Alabama and 277 against Tennessee. Now, when Jimbo Fisher got to A&M, they were all of a sudden one of the best recruiting spots in the country. Okay. Everyone wants to talk about the contract that he signed back in 17, 10 years, 75 million. Well, after the 9-1 season and a number four finish in the COVID year of 2020, Gets a big contract extension. 10-year clock starts over again. $95 million now through 2031. Well, they now have a brand new indoor practice field. They've been well-funded for name, image, and likeness. The roster looks like one of the best in the SEC, but they don't seem to have the ingredients necessary to be able to pull it off. So you look at where they're at right now. 43-24 and 24 is Jimbo Fisher's record. Kevin Sumlin, granted, Kevin Sumlin had Johnny Manziel, and people always like to put back and say, well, look at Kevin Sutherland's games record through 67 games. Well, if you had a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback, I would imagine that Jimbo Fisher's record would probably be a whole heck of a lot better. But since the start of 2020, or since the end of 2020, excuse me, that was when he peaked. They're 17 and 14 overall and 8 and 12 in SEC play. I mean, it's starting to kind of become a little bit difficult to forecast when will A&M break through? Now, you also have to take into account this is not a program that has just had consistent sustainability at the top of college football for a really long time. They haven't won a conference championship anywhere since 1998. That was the third year that they were in the Big 12. So while I think Jimbo Fisher's tenure has been frustrating with highs and lows, this has been a program that has not often had championships in the modern era. But man, it's just disappointing to see this team continuing to underachieve. And this past Saturday was a difficult one to stomach if you're an Aggie fan. Yeah. What's the patience going to be like? I mean, from the administrations, from the fans, you made all the comparisons. You even said they haven't won much since 1998 on like that high level. Expectations, patience, how long does he have? Uh, I can't answer that question. I really don't know. Um, I talk to people in Aggie land and some people say, yeah, we're fed up. Other people say we're patient still young, had some growing pains, have had some tough circumstances. Well, man, it's getting to the point where it's put up or shut up. Like it's time for them to take a step. 
And it's time for them to start playing up to their potential because the talent is there. But the potential, being accused of having potential that's that's not reached is not something you ever want for a program. Takeaway number seven. Feels like for a couple weeks now, some teams are just kind of under the radar. And strangely enough, Florida State feels like they're one of those teams that is quietly getting better. They've now won 12 consecutive games. They completely destroyed the Syracuse Orange. I mean, completely destroyed them with an explosive offense that was just ridiculous. They averaged nine plus yards per play on first down. Syracuse, conversely, averaged 4.2. Now, that I think is pretty dang impressive. They were in in obvious passing downs only 25% of the time. Meaning they were behind the sticks and off schedule 25% of the time. That's a great situation to be in. A great situation to be in. 12 explosive plays. Those 12 explosive plays turned into 346 yards of offense. And you look at their weapons, man. And we, we kind of talked about this on yesterday's show. When Keon Coleman signed with Florida State, I was thinking he's going to be a great compliment just to, just to add another weapon on the outside to Johnny Wilson, who I thought would probably be the number one guy and Keon Coleman would be the number two and those guys would be a dynamic duo. But Keon Coleman is their best player. I mean, better than Jordan Travis, better than than what we've seen at any of the running backs. And I think the running backs are excellent. Better than Jaheim Bell, who's been pretty good. Better than Johnny Wilson. I mean, Keon Coleman is a complete game changer. I mean, obviously the absurd one-hand catch is just dumb, right? But it's not just on the the route running, the run after catch. We're talking about contributing on special teams. You have 140 yards and nine catches. He is unbelievable. First team All-American, without question, based on what I've seen through the first six or seven weeks of the season. There are very few receivers that are impacting the game as much as Keon Coleman. But how about Jaheim Bell? It felt like it was time for Jaheim Bell to kind of break out. There have been moments where he's been pretty good. Did have a drop, but had the nice catch and run. Finishes up with nearly 90 yards of offense. Lawrence Toafili has taken a bit of a back seat, but he now goes for 93 yards, including a 50-yard touchdown run. The longest run of the season for him, and he's been a little quiet, a little bit quiet when taking into account what his ultimate contributions will be, but he's starting to come on. Now, obviously, beating LSU and Clemson, those are maybe not the significant program-defining wins that we thought they'd be coming into the season. You know, LSU has a couple losses. Clemson has a couple losses. But I think those wins are actually going to strengthen over time because LSU looks like they're improving weekly. Clemson, I believe, will improve as the season goes along as well. I mean, Florida State completely flexed on Saturday. That was a route and one of the best defensive performances of the season to date. Now, Jordan Travis is in a great spot. The offense is a great spot, but now the defense is starting to come on as well. And if this team can round into form on that side of the ball to complement an offense that's explosive, they're going to be in a great spot to make a charge down the stretch towards being potentially undefeated and possibly punching their ticket to the college football playoff. Takeaway number eight, if the Big Ten game championship game is a college football playoff quarterfinal, people need to start preparing themselves 
for the idea that Iowa is possibly 60 minutes away from a college football playoff berth. Now, it should not come as a crazy surprise. I mean, since 2018, Ohio State and Michigan are the only Big Ten teams with more wins. But after what we saw from the Hawkeyes this past weekend, 10-point dogs going to Madison to play against Wisconsin, and they beat them 15-6. to Now, granted, the only score in the first half was that 82-yard touchdown run by LaShawn Williams, which was I, I thought was interesting, and I saw in a note. I guess it happened at the exact same time as a solar eclipse, which is wild in and of its own right. But Iowa just cleared one of their biggest hurdles of the season. Now, if you look at what they have down the stretch, Iowa is sitting at like number 24 right now, and their schedule is extremely manageable. They're going to be favored in their final five games. Minnesota, Northwestern, Rutgers, Illinois, and Nebraska. Only Nebraska is away from Kinnick Stadium. And only Rutgers, which was in a real hole this past weekend, they rallied obviously in the fourth quarter to beat Michigan State. Only Rutgers amongst that group has a winning record at the moment. Now, I know a lot of people are going to look at Iowa and kind of roll their eyes because if you look at where they're at right now, they've scored 146 points this season, 16 of which have come from Phil Parker's defense. And I know a lot's been made of Brian Ferentz and the drive to 225 or whatever it is. They're going to have to average a lot of points down the stretch for them to ultimately eclipse that total. They have to score 25 points per game. Or Brian Ferentz's contract expires, but it should be noted that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be fired. There's a pretty black and white stipulation within the contract that I don't think is you know a, a huge deal breaker. I said drive to 225. It's drive to 325, excuse me. But it's become weekly fodder, and everyone continues to poke fun at Iowa's offensive ineptitude. But isn't the goal to win the game? I understand that it would be really fun, I think, for Iowa's fans and for college football fans to see Iowa running uh, an offense that would lead to them maybe making more plays downfield or maybe taking more risks or being more explosive. All these, like, that'd be a great thing. I would love to see it. I would. I would love to see them play in a style of attack that, that might be a little bit more of the modern era. But the goal is to win the game. And they know that their best attribute is the defense. And they're going to play complimentary football. So if they have to win games 15 to 6, who cares? Because ultimately, the only stat that should matter is the one in the win column. So while we're looking at a situation right now, I think it's a very strong possibility that we are going to fast forward to the end of the year and Iowa's going to be 11 to 1. Now here's the problem. Iowa even if they are 11 to 1 and let's say in the magical world they win against the Big 10 East champ and win the Big 10 will it be enough probably not especially if one of the teams they're being compared to is Penn State because Penn State blanked them 31 nothing so just get ready Iowa's not going anywhere and they're going to be a very polarizing topic as we move forward in the college football season.
Number nine, RIP Colorado. Love you. Appreciate you. There's a lot to be made of, of how Colorado has rebuilt their roster. There's a lot to be made with the progress that was shown there in the early part of the season. But having sitting up and watched the 29-0 lead evaporate, the biggest collapse in school history and leading to ultimately a 46-43 loss to Stanford in double, double overtime, it was pretty scary. Now, Shador Sanders continues to do some awesome things. Now, they Unfortunately, when you have a 29-0 lead, it'd be great if you could run the football. Well, the running back position, 21 carries, 81 yards. The offense had a couple punts, a couple turnovers on downs, and then you look at the possessions in the second half, wasn't good. Wasn't good whatsoever. They are 130th nationally in yards per carry. It's not good. The thing that's most illum- most eye-opening is that thought Travis Hunter coming back would make up a huge difference. And you look at some of the biggest plays of the night, it looked like Stanford was running the same play over and over again if you actually watch it. Like Alec Io Manor, who had the school record with 294 yards, three touchdowns on 13 catches. All in the second half. It's insane. But not being able to run the ball, man, is what ultimately is killing Colorado right now. Now, they're off next week. But if you look at what they have down the stretch, three of their next five games are on the road. If Colorado had held on and beaten Stanford, they would have needed to beat Arizona and Boulder in their home finale on November 11th to secure a bowl bid. Now, it's liking, looking like that game might be a difficult one to win, especially after what Arizona did last week. And Colorado still doesn't have a win against a team that's currently ranked. You got UCLA on the road. All right. You got Oregon State a week later. Then you get Arizona at home. And it closes the season with a trip to Washington State before traveling to Pac-12's reigning two-time champion, Utah, to close the regular season. I don't think it's likely that they get another win this season because every single team that they face down the stretch is better than them. Can they pull off an upset? Sure, but going bowling, looking highly unlikely for the Colorado Buffaloes right now. Takeaway number 10. People need to start paying attention to North Carolina. You look at what they've done up to this point. I think a lot of people will say, well, who they played, who they beaten. All that is fair. They've played five games out of their six against Power 5 conference opponents. Not many have been very good, but the game against Miami is without question their strongest win to date. And it's their fifth win by double digits this season. Now, they had one one-score game, and that was against Appalachian State, and what was a weird game, by the way. They ultimately got the win against App State, but outside of that, man, things are looking really solid. And you look at the game against Duke coming up here on November 11th, they're going to be in a position to possibly be 11-1, 12-0 at the end of the season. Now, a lot of meat left on the bone, a couple road trips late. It'll be difficult for sure. We're talking about a team that scored at least 31 points in every game this year, 40 or more in all three games against ACC foes. And Drake May is starting to really play good football. 
had some turnovers early in the season, four picks in the first three games, but he is rounding into form. In the last few games, eight touchdown passes against zero picks in the last three games. And the addition of Tez Walker is going to open things up drastically for this North Carolina offense. He's a game changer. He's going to play the outside receiver. And we now know that if left in one-on-one situations, he will take over the game. Did so this past weekend, three touchdowns. The first touchdown was on a little seam route. They tried to double McCollum there in the slot. He bends right in between them, hits it for a glance touchdown. All right, third and 20. They run zone coverage. He splits it with the knife dagger concept, catch and run, house. He's just getting started. Two weeks ago, he was thrust into the lineup after finding out he was eligible on Thursday. Didn't even know the offensive game plan. They basically had to tell him, hey, Tez, run this. And he ran that. Still had six catches in the game. Had one of the most acrobatic catches of the weekend on the sideline. So now that he actually knows what he's doing is developing a rapport with Drake May, that's going to really open things up. Nate McCollum's still going to be excellent in the slot. They still have really good weapons at tight ends. I think J.J. Jones at wide receiver is also a really good piece to be your number three wide receiver. And if Kobe Pesor can come back, from the injury, he missed last week, going to be out for a little bit. But if he can come back, now you have four really dynamic wide receivers, two really, really good tight ends, and a run game featuring Amari and Hampton, that's going to be a huge issue. They have two running backs and Amari and Hampton and British Brooks that are 220, 225 pounds. These guys will pound you. And while the offensive line, they're not road graders, their running backs make them right more often than not. And then defensively, the sack totals maybe a little inflated by what happened in week one with nine sacks against South Carolina. And they've come back to earth a little bit, but this group on the edges of the defense is really good. Cayman Rucker, all ACC player without question. They have two linebackers off the ball that are off the charts. Good. And the secondary is looking better and better with each passing week. People need to start paying attention to North Carolina because this is not a team that has benefited from a manageable first half schedule. This is a team that can play you in a physical game. They can play you in a track meet. They have one of the nation's best players at quarterback in Drake May. They have an, a defense that has improved drastically from where they were a year ago. We're going to fast forward to the end of the year, and this team's going to be a player and a factor when it comes to the overall rankings and teams that could punch their ticket to the dance. Couple of significant injuries impacting teams in college football. This is up to the date in, in our information. We don't have all the specifics of all the injuries, but there are two notable injuries from this past weekend. Let's start with Tanner Mordecai, the quarterback of the Wisconsin Badgers. He is going to have surgery, get a pin inserted into his throwing hand. He was seen on national television saying, I can't throw, all these other things. So that is an unfortunate turn of events for Wisconsin offensively. He was not playing great football by any stretch, but he, of course, is the most experienced quarterback that they have on their roster at the moment. So hopefully he can get back at some point here in the near future. Have not seen just yet whether or not this is a season ender. I had surgery on my throwing thumb where I had three pins put into my throwing thumb and it resulted in a 12-week injury. So hopefully, fingers crossed, for Mordecai, he can return a little bit quicker than that, but doesn't look likely that he's going to be back anytime soon for the Wisconsin Badgers. And then another significant one, naturally, a guy that was a Heisman contender 
coming into last week's game, Brock Bowers is going to be sidelined for an extended period of time after having tightrope procedure performed on his high ankle sprain. The average timetable for a tightrope procedure recovery would be like four to six weeks. High ankle sprains are really tough, but this tightrope procedure can actually make the ankle stronger in time. But we've seen quarterbacks play on it in shorter periods of time. Tua Tungabailoa had the tightrope procedure a few years back in 2019, I believe, and he returned in two or three weeks. At receiver slash tight end, I would think that the recovery timeline would be a little bit longer, but Brock Bowers is obviously such an important piece to what Georgia wants to be down the road. Might not need him in the regular season. I think Georgia's that good. But if he can be back in time for the Tennessee game, or if he can be back in time for the SEC championship game, assuming they get there, that could be significant for their long-term prospects. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Continue to ask all of you to like, hit that thumbs up button right below the ESPN YouTube video. If you can subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get your podcast, that'd be awesome. You can also subscribe to the ESPN College Football YouTube channel as well. And leave us a rating on wherever it is you get your podcast, whether that's Spotify or on Apple. If you could leave us a rating, it'd mean a lot to us. We know that you guys have done a great job as far as leaving reviews as well. So if you want to leave a review, that would mean a lot. So we so appreciate all of you coming to us again here on a Monday edition of Always College Football. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.